Welcome to Gigami, the podcast for up-and-coming musicians who are serious about turning their talent into a career. I'm Dave Holly. I've toiled in the trenches of the music industry, man and boy, for more than 30 years. Each week I talk to an artist or exec about their experience of how the industry really works and what you can do to give yourself the best chance of breaking into it and build a good life and make a good living while creating the fantastic music you were put on earth to create. If you have any questions or just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co, that is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. I will always reply. Until then, on with the show. Today's guest is Anne Harrison. When I decided to start Gigami, Anne was one of the first names on my list of people to ask on the podcast. She's one of the most experienced, respected and sought-after lawyers in the music industry and is particularly known for her work on behalf of artists. She represents musicians from all genres and at all stages of their careers, from those completely new to the business through to chart-topping artists. Anne is also author of Music the Business, published by Penguin Random House, which is the key textbook on all music business further education courses in the UK. She regularly gives masterclasses and training in all aspects of the legal side of the music business. You can find Anne at ssb.co.uk. I hope you enjoy the episode. Find it useful. Welcome to this episode of Gigami. Today's guest is Anne Harrison. Anne, hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks, and thanks for having me on. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Could we start with a question about you, please? Could you tell us a little bit about your career? How have you ended up doing what you do now? When I tell people this story, it's the, the theme through it is accidental. I never aimed to be a lawyer. I certainly never aimed to be a music lawyer. These days, you can actually follow a training path that will take you to becoming a specialist music lawyer. But when I was doing it in the dark ages, um, there was no such uh, route. Um, And indeed, there wasn't really a fully established kind of role as a music lawyer. It was much more a kind of entertainment lawyer where you did bits and pieces of lots of things. But I was always been a stubborn person as my parents would attest to. And I grew up in a tiny mining village in the South Wales Valleys. And my teachers had fairly low aspirations for me. And my parents, nobody in my family had been to university, so I had no sort of role models to follow. They were both self-made people, but not college or university people. So I was told by my school I would not go very far, which is really like telling someone, you know, you know not to breathe. So I went into the library because we didn't have the internet in those days. <laughs> I went into the library and I read up on all the college courses and how you applied. And I applied um, to a, a range of them. And then I made a rather stupid basic error of not actually studying for my A-levels, thinking I could wing it. And instead, I was running coach trips to the local clubs um, for my colleagues who, who you know, we, were, we, we had one bus a day. So I was hiring the buses and, and, and hiring them out to go to Swansea and Cardiff to see gigs and go to clubs. And I forgot to study. So I did abysmally in my A-levels. And the only university that would actually take me was the University of Surrey. But it was the, a brilliant move for me uh, by accident because they had some really, really charismatic law lecturers in that university. And one lecture with them and I was sold. So I followed all the courses I could to become a lawyer. And eventually, after a lot of years of training, I became one. But I was a litigator for seven or eight years, 
mostly doing non-music type stuff. But then I joined a firm called Bartlett's Dorea, who had a fil film department, and I did work for Richard Attenborough and people like that. Uh, I worked on the Cry Freedom uh, film. And as a result, I got a taste for it. So when that firm uh, closed, I joined Downport Lions, which was a, an established music company in Soho Square. And from there, I kind of followed a music path, but not as a litigator, ultimately, because um, if you're a litigator, there comes a point where you don't do the fun bit, which is advocacy in court. You're sitting behind the scenes, and that didn't appeal to me. So I moved sideways into what we call, you know, sort of the contractual side, the non-contentious side. And through a succession of very happy accidents, I have ended up working as a consultant at the wonderful firm of SSB. And as well as being one of the industry's top lawyers, you're also well known for having written a book. Well, actually, there's different versions of that book. It's the standard book that a lot of us in the industry read. It's called Music the Business. And I think you've just updated it, haven't you? Could you just explain a little bit of what the book's about and who it's for? I certainly can, yes. Uh, it kept me busy in lockdown rewriting it last year, so the eighth edition's just come out. The, the book started with uh, Virgin Publishing. There was a chap called Stuart Slater, who was um, a good A&R uh, director in the music business, but he then moved across to book publishing and he said to me and there is not a UK book that is there for the non-lawyer I, I think you can write it and for a couple of years I resisted until you obviously got me on a weak moment and I said all right Stuart I'll do it so in 1999 I wrote the first edition of it and I delivered it to him in about December 1999 and he said this is great and but you're gonna have to redo it I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's not the right voice, as he called it. I was writing a little bit too much like a lawyer. And he said, I've heard you go through a contract with a band. I've heard you explain a contract to a band. That's the voice I want. So I spent the Millennium Eve 1999 <laughs> rewriting this book because it had to be delivered the first week of January. Um, so I have memories of the Millennium Eve for very different reasons to many people. But he was right, of course, and it is aimed at the... I mean, lawyers read it, junior lawyers read it. I'm, I'm blessed that people are prepared to read it when they first start out in record labels and music publishers. I feel deeply honoured that they feel it is useful to them. But it was really meant for someone who just wanted a kind of like a roadmap. You know, how does this all work? Where do these people all fit in? How do I go about doing this? And as the editions have gone on, so it has become, each one is sort of adapting to the changes. And the last couple of editions, this one in particular, have been geared to what if I don't want to go down the major record label route? What if I want to put my music out myself under my own control? How do I, as a DIY musician, if you like, um, do that? And a lot of the masterclasses that I give are also uh, mostly questions in this area. So, it, you know, that is the biggest growth I would say we've seen in the last four or five years is how the independent and DIY sector has kind of stepped up. So it's really aimed at people who want to know how it all works, but probably are going to employ a lawyer at some point. I dip in and out of it whenever I hit something that I don't know. You know, I've been in this business 30 plus years, but there's still lots that I don't know. 
And this is a fantastic um, first point of reference. Yeah, I recommend it to anyone out there listening to this to get hold of it. It really does explain things pretty simply. It goes into a fair amount of detail, but I think it will answer most people's questions. One question for you. Do you do an audiobook version of it? This is very interesting that you should say that. Um, Virgin, uh, Virgin Penguin Random House is my publisher, to give it its full title. And I asked them to do an audiobook because many, many people are asking me for one. And, you know, people want to read it in the car, listen to it in the car, students when they're sort of commuting. And ironically, Penguin did not think there was a market there and I could not persuade them. So I asked them for the rights back to an audio version and they gave them to me. So I am in the process of recording the audio version. I am astonished that, that, that Penguin Random House can't see it as a market, especially as I told them I could get free studio time. But so be it. They've given me the rights back and I can promote it alongside the ebook and the hardback. So that's what I'm going to do. I'd like to talk about the DIY musician in a bit more detail in a moment, uh, but you just mentioned masterclasses. W- what are they? Mostly, I am asked as a one-off to speak to various groups of people, and that continued last year, obviously, all on Zoom or Teams. And sometimes it's like the National Film and Television School wanted me to speak to their students, and I, I did that. Um, I taught a master's class at the, uh, over a 12-week term for the University of West London, and I do one-off kind of classes mostly for higher education institutions. Uh, I used to have a training company with Ian Ramage at BMG, and Ian and I used to do a lot of master classes for the Guardian newspaper, and we would, uh, it was open to the public, you signed up for a day, and we did Quite often, you know, the DIY musician, funny enough, David. Um, But The Guardian then changed its sort of its focus and went on to creative writing instead. And so we both got busy lives. So Ian and I have rather mothballed it. But I haven't given up on the idea of offering some form of online masterclasses. uh, But that is not as far advanced as an idea as the audiobook is. Are you able to mention some of the clients that you've worked for? Mm, That's a little delicate because obviously we have client confidentiality and, you know, what a client says to us stays with us, as it were. Um, We take, if you've ever, you know, dealt with SSB, you know that we have an almost perverse attitude to not promoting ourselves. Um, When I joined here four years ago, I had to persuade them to put up the most basic website because they just did not need to do it it's a it's a sort of reverse arrogance in a way because we get so much work by word of mouth that there was a sense that we didn't need to do that but i disagreed and um what we what we sort of say is that if a client is kind enough to refer to us or give us a name check or it's you know made public in some other way that we're involved then we can mention them but the vast majority of our clients we don't so some of the ones that I have worked with that I could name would be, for example, PJ Harvey, uh, bands, uh, well, I worked with Robbie Williams for quite a long time, but that was a, a few years ago now. And uh, lots of clients of the firms are people like Dua Lipa, uh, Paloma Faith, um, those kind of, you know, George Ezra. There are a number of, we, we are very, very fortunate that we have a lot of fairly household name clients. To be fair, it's not just SSB, it's you, isn't it? 
I mean, I'm blowing smoke a little bit, but you are very well regarded in the industry. And you've worked with loads of people, basically, haven't you? Uh, well, I've, had, I've been at it quite a long time. I just know it. it's, it's coming up scarily to 40 years since I became a lawyer. I know. I know. I don't look older than 12. I know. <laughs> but, you, you know, in that time, you know, obviously a number of people that became very well known have crossed my path. But for me, as much joy comes from making the first deal for someone you know, and setting them on their road, or more importantly, stopping them from making a really bad first deal, because, you know, they're desperate to get signed, somebody takes advantage of that, sends them an offer, which really, 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 they will come to regret. And to sort of try and advising and steering in that, it gives an awful lot of satisfaction too. So my clients go right across the spectrum. And, and at the moment, funny enough, it's gone in odd directions. Um, a number of influencer clients. Now, who would have thought of that sort of two years ago? And a lot of DIY artists. We have a huge DIY practice. But when I say DIY artists, I mean those that have actively chosen to not engage with the major system because they are doing so well on their own accord that they don't feel the need to. So we, you know, we have people that are extremely successful as DIY releases. Um, so yeah, and yes, I am fortunate that a large number of those are mine, but I, I am a part of a team. So we speak as a team, really. Okay, can we now concentrate on the DIY music area in this conversation, and specifically for the UK, because I guess the law is slightly different in every country. I'm interested in what are the legal aspects of different bits of the business that um, DIY musicians need to be aware of? Not necessarily be an expert in, but just be aware of and some of the practical things that they might do. Could we start with names, for example? You know, the names that people perform under. I guess that's their real name or it's a stage name or it's the name of a band. How do they establish ownership of the name? And what, if anything, can they do to stop other people using the same one? Okay, um, finding a, a suitable name is a real, really hard task. You'd, you'd think it would be simple, wouldn't you? But you know, there are, um, don't forget, although we're talking about the UK, if uh, you're expecting to have um, sales or exposure outside the UK, you do also have to consider the other major markets and whether you would clash with someone there. So if you're using your own name, then it's very difficult for anybody to stop you using it. Um, ironically, there are some territories, including the UK, where you are allowed to register a trademark in your own name. I've always been slightly um, unsure about that ruling, because what happens, for example, if there were you know, two Robbie Williamses, for example, which in fact there are, um, you know, the trademark gives the one Robbie Williams quite a few rights if he chose to exercise them as against um, the other Robbie Williams. And that doesn't strike me as overly fair. So I would imagine what would happen there would be they would agree to coexist. But band names is another thing altogether because there are many cases on conflicting names. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple still going on, the, the Dixie Chicks, changed their name last year and are in the middle of a, an ongoing battle with another artist in America who has the same name, who's been going for a long time. Um, there are a lot of cases around this because if you already have an established name or reputation in 
a, a name, then you can use either trademark law, if you have a trademark, or the general law against passing off to stop others using the same or an inherently similar name. And that means that before you invest time, effort, emotion into a name, you do need to do some homework to see if anyone else is already using it. So basic you know, online searches, you can do a basic trademark search online for free at the trademark, uh, at um, the ICO, the International Copyright Office, and you can see if anyone else has registered the name or a very similar name. And if they have, then warning lights should go on and you should start thinking about possibly changing that name because you don't want to invest time and effort in it and then find you get a, you know, a letter off an, an annoyed other band saying you can't use this name because we've been using it for the last 10 years. So you do need to do a bit of uh, research around the subject. But once you have um, landed on a name that seems reasonably safe, you then are able to look at protecting it by using the law of passing off, which is to prevent somebody else passing themselves off as you, appearing to be you. So that, you know, for example, if both of you were doing gigs in the same town, you would lose ticket sales to the other artist because they thought they were coming to see you, they were confused. So you've got those kind of issues of passing off, but you could also apply for a trademark yourself. Now, that isn't cheap. So we really only recommend that if it, it's a good business decision all around. For example, if you are prepared to enforce that trademark. So it's not good saying, I'm going to stop people you know, printing T-shirts with my name on it because I've got a trademark. Well, that's great. But if you don't then enforce it regularly and take those people to court if necessary, then it's not really worth having the trademark. If you don't decide that you are going to invest money into enforcement, then it becomes a bit of a moot point as to why you're bothering with the trademark in the first place. It, it can make you feel a bit more uh, grown up as a business, and it, it could uh, help you know, distributors like to know that there's a trademark in place so that they could take action if they really needed to. So it's not completely wasted, but you know, for sort of about £2,000 for a basic registration and then additional costs on top of that, you've got to really know that you, you're going to get value out of that trademark. You know? So most people rely on the passing off. If a band has come up with a name, Anne, who owns the name? You know, which of the band members own it? Well, um, that is a, a case of an agreement between the band members. It is possible that the record label might come up with the name. And it might actually say in the record deal that they own it. So that is one of the things that we look at when we're looking at record deals to see if there is anything specific about ownership of names. In some genres of music, particularly in the pop music field, you sometimes have bands that are sort of put together by a label or a manager who interviews and, and, and creates a lineup. And in those cases, that label or manager may very well expect to own that name. But if we are talking about between individual band members, there is, there is a need um, for real transparency on these issues. And no matter how many times I go on about this, I find that bands do not want to address these issues. I 
probably advise almost every band I work with to get a band agreement, and I would say 90% don't bother. It's because it's a cost that at that point in their careers, they really can't see the benefit of having. But if you go to the end of their careers and where they are fighting over names and songs and recordings and every other thing, they will then wish they had that band agreement because it's like a divorce. If you set out you know, a prenuptial, it kind of makes it a little bit easier. Or if you buy a property and you have a, an agreement as to you know, who contributed to the mortgage, who owns the biggest share, that makes the divorce end of it so much easier. What would go into a band agreement? Well, who owns the band, uh, the band name? Is it, for example, if the band splits up, can nobody use it afterwards? Or can the remaining members and the leaving member doesn't have any claims on the name? That, that's the more usual. Or is it that one individual, you know, the lead singer, uh, very powerful perhaps in the band and demands that they are the only one that will be able to go forward with that name? Now, I'm always a little bit um, uncomfortable about that one because, you know, a lead singer, yes, often is the leader of the band, but by no means all. So I would prefer always a sort of more democratic, you know, all or nothing. So if the band splits up, nobody gets to use it. But the more common one is that if somebody leaves the band, they don't take the band name with them. And in addition to band names, you also want to deal with things like equipment. You know, is, are the mics owned by the group or by the individual who uses that mic? Is the drum kit owned by the drummer or by the whole band? Um, and then songwriting, um, is everything split equally? I'm sure we'll come on to more questions about songwriting, but um, those are the kind of things that you would put into a band's agreement. And you would start to think about what happens when the band finishes. You can't, you can't legislate for everything. There's no way that you would cover every circumstance in a band's agreement. It's like a management contract. You can never cover every single eventuality in a management contract, but you can get the basic principles down, which gives you a start point for when you're trying to unravel a band later on. So the basic building block of the industry is the song, isn't it? How, how would you describe what a copyright is and why it's important? Oh, copyright is the fundamental of, of everything we do in the music business. Copyright and contract are the two you know, legal areas that I spend most of my time working with and copyright is is a property right just like a house or a car but it's a property of the mind as it were it's an intellectual property so the owner of that property can decide what happens with it whether it is released whether it's uh, changed whether it's made available whether it's played in public there are you know a number of copyrights attached to the ownership of a piece of copyright. And with a song, if it's a, a commercial song in that sense, there would usually be the musical copyright, which is obviously the music, and a literary copyright, which would be the lyrics. And so you have two copyrights in every, in every song. Now, obviously, if it's an instrumental only, you're going to have just the one copyright in the music. And until relatively recently, you could have separate copyright periods for words and music because they were perhaps existing lyrics that were later put together with a piece of music and you had an odd situation where the copyright in the lyrics could expire before the copyright in the music and now that was a disaster so relatively recently they have changed the law to say that if the song 
if the two were meant written to be meant to be together, then they are treated as one copyright for the duration of copyright. But mostly we take it as sort of half of the total rights uh, sitting with the words and the other half with the music. But that is very much just a start point because in every collaboration around songwriting, you will find different splits, as we call them, the division of ownership of that musical or literary copyright. And it is a, a interesting development of the last five years is the, the number of people that could be claiming an interest in a particular song. So if you look at the credits sometimes on some uh, modern releases, I've seen some where there were up to 12 names mentioned. And that is because of a combination of things. Sometimes they have had to acknowledge that they borrowed from somewhere else and they give a credit to the writer of the song that they've borrowed or sampled. Um, but more often than not, it will be the nature of how music is created in many cases these days where that you go into the studio or the rehearsal studio without actually a body of songs ready to go they emerge over the course of the days in the studio or rehearsals and people in the room at that time contribute and therefore are given an interest in that song so those splits then have to be recorded and registered and it, it is an area of most contention is probably who wrote what in the song. It's something that I would ask a band to think about in band agreements, but it, it, you know, it may not be a band, it could be a collaboration between two writers. And it's sort of like as though, I, you know, I understand why, but people tiptoe around the issue. They wait till the song is finished, and then people have gone their separate ways, they're not in the studios together anymore. And then the issue of, okay, who wrote what comes up. And if you're lucky, it's all very clear. Uh, but I'm currently in the middle of one where we thought we had agreed splits, but one of the featured artists is now saying, well, no, I think I deserve more on that song because I helped towards the middle eight or whatever it might be, right? And so now all of a sudden we are facing a, a sort of like trying to mediate between all these various interests to decide who who has, who has got a claim to what on that song. So my advice, which again is relatively ra rarely followed, is to be transparent about what you're expecting on these songs. You know, perhaps if possible before the song is written, like for example, whatever we write in the studio over the next three days is equal. That would be lovely, lawyers would love that. Or when you finished it, but whilst the glow of creation is still there, agree what you've done and if possible write it down and that could be as simple as you know sending an email between each other saying confirming on these songs this is how we're splitting it then we've got less scope for there being argument down the line you mentioned registering songs and where, where do you do that well assuming we're talking uk here the song itself you would your first port of call is probably the prs and you need to be a member of the prs their requirements for membership have got easier over the years, but you don't want to just register a song you've just written in your back bedroom. There has to be some notion that it's going to be released to the public or made available in some way before the PRS wants to uh, engage in registering your songs. And there is a small fee. 
but you would register as a member of PRS and then use their online registration service to fill in an online form which would state title, who wrote it, have they got any aliases, what percentage is each one written, and details of any publisher. Now, if there is a publisher, that is probably the job that the publisher would undertake on the writer's behalf. But if we're talking DIY, we may be at an earlier stage where it is the individual writer that's going to have to do that. The online forms are not the most straightforward in the world, but they are getting better. And there is a help desk service to walk you through the first few times that you do that. And because of the way that the PRS is set up, it also acts as a similar registration point for the MCPS, the mechanical copyright, which is the fee that has to be paid every time somebody wants to reproduce that song. So one stop registration on the PRS form will currently get you a registration also at MCPS. But again, you need to make sure you're a member of MCPS, otherwise you can't collect that income. When you're recording your own songs, I guess you don't need permission to do that? because you've written them, haven't you? But what if you're recording somebody else's song? Actually, technically, even when it's your own song, there is a system for, for, for um, getting permission to use your own song. I know that sounds bonkers, but technically. But what happens is, of course, there is a waiver. So they say, oh, it's only your own songs, fine. Well, we'll waive uh, uh, the right to, to kind of license those songs. But the second you start working with someone else, or with a, an existing song, then you must register and get permission to use that song, a license. Now, we have a system here, and it is also the case in most other countries, um, where the first time a re- recording is reproduced, you as the writers can stop that happening. It's one of your rights as a copyright owner. But once it has been recorded and released, you have exhausted that right. So you cannot then stop someone from making a faithful copy of it. So if it's a straight cover of it, they apply for the license, they get the right to use it, they pay the license fee, which is set, and away to go. If you make any changes to that work, you are changing somebody else's copyright. You cannot do that without their permission. So if, for example, it's a record written from the male perspective and you change the lyrics to a female perspective or you change some of the songs, uh, sorry, some of the music to the song, then you are changing somebody else's work and you need their permission to do that. So you would find out whether they were published and you would go to the publisher and ask for permission. They would usually ask you to submit a copy of what you intend to do, and they would usually go to the writer and say, you okay with this? And in most cases, as long as you're being suitably respectful, you can expect to get permission on certain terms. But if what you've done they don't like, or if as a matter of course, that writer does not allow changes, then you'll get a kickback and you won't get the permission to do it. So if you then release that your version of that song without that permission, you're infringing, breaking their copyright, and they can take legal action against you. So my advice in all these things where you're c- covering, 
recording somebody else's song is to make sure at the very early doors that you know that you can commercially use that because if you don't and you go right down the line and you know you're at the edge of about to release or you've released a promo version and then you get the call saying hang on a minute nobody gave you permission to do that then your entire campaign is in tatters so it play, it pays to go early on these things what about samples do they work in the same way exactly the same way but even more i was going to say there's even more likelihood that is that the original creator of the original work will have something to say about it now i do know of an awful lot of very high profile very successful writers and recording artists who don't have a problem with people making versions of their works they don't um, but they all would expect to be credited and they would all expect to be asked i mean and it's courtesy but it's also the law so unless it's a straight cover recording with no material changes you need to ask and the earlier you do that the better and with samples is exactly the same you need to go early and get permission the number of times david i hear people saying oh well no deal no it's there you know it's really obscure that's nonsense because they found it and therefore somebody else can find it and and i think you know many of the the major players in the worldwide actually have people that listen out on new releases and say well hang on a minute that's got one of our pieces in there um or or the internet will do it for you because if you release uh, your, new, your your new single um somebody will say oh doesn't that sound like and before you know it there's a kind of call or an email in your inbox saying we hear you've released this if this is correct then it's got a sample of our recording in it or our song in it and we want to talk to you about this and and i don't know about your contracts david but you know most music publishers will give a right of approval to the artists over material uh, to, sorry to the writer over material changes use in adverts you know that kind of thing so even though the publisher may be okay with it sometimes the writer is not and you know a decent publisher such as yourselves would always take into account the wishes of the writer because why would you want to damage the relationship with that writer you know so the one thing i think i haven't clarified and it might be worth doing is don't assume if you are sampling or changing somebody else's work that they would be happy for you to collect the income on that because for example if you've used a lot of samples from somebody else's song you've replayed them so you're just talking about the song and they say yeah you can do it that's fine but all of the publishing income from your new version will come to us because you have as it were built your work on the back of us and therefore we are only going to give our permission if we collect the publishing income or perhaps we share the publishing income with you um and i've had a couple of writers be sort of badly stung on this they sampled assumed that it was all going to be absolutely fine have gone to the publishers of the sampled work and they said yeah, yeah that's fine you can use it but 100% of this is going to be ours and at that point they were so committed to this that they had to go forward with that on that basis and then that track 
uh, like the, the example I'm thinking of, it was picked up by the BBC as one of their sort of on-rotation songs. And every time it played, that artist was going, oh, I don't know anything of this because I haven't got any interest in that new work. And they never sampled again because they learned the lesson from that, you know. What about playing live? Do you need permission to play other people's songs live? Not, not on a case-by-case sort of basis, but the places that you will be playing in will probably, or should probably, be licensed by the PRS and the PPL on the recording side for live performances. And so the venue will pay an annual fee, which is collected by the PRS, and will then... The PRS operates a sort of sampling basis where they do test samples of what's been played in particular venues or live, and they pay out to their members based on those samples. Uh, I've obviously greatly oversimplified that, but that's sort of the basis of it. So most venues that are open to the public have a PRS license, and if they haven't, they probably have somebody knocking on the door quite soon to, to get one. Um, If you're in, you know, if you're playing to your mates in your back garden, technically, (laughs) if if you're playing other people's songs, you ought to sort of pay a fee for that. But obviously nobody's going to be monitoring that unless you decide to put the recording of your show up online and then you can expect somebody to say, hello, where's our fee? Moving on to recordings. I guess... I guess that's a separate copyright in recordings, isn't it? Um, how, are, how are the recording copyrights different to the songwriting ones? And how are they similar? The underlying right is still a copyright, so a, a property right that you can prevent people doing things with your work. So, But it is a separate sound recording right. And it, it sits... The song is the, is the basis. I think of it as layers of a cake... So you've got the the song as the bedrock, the bottom layer, and without the song, nothing happens. But then you can have very... There's a layer above it of the sound recording. And there can be many, many different sound recordings of the same song. So if you think... Let's just think of the Beatles for a minute. Just think of how many cover versions there have been of of Beatles songs. Now, the, the songs is just the one song that's been recorded but many different people will own that sound recording copyright. And so you, one song, many recordings. So lots of different potential owners of that sound recording copyright. And they have, you know, they, they have similar rights that sit alongside the songs as to what can happen with those recordings. If we come back to our sample question for a moment, imagine if you um, wanted to sample somebody else's recording of a song. You're then actually sampling different things. You're sampling the sound recording, you're ripping it off the original, and you're also sampling the song, the musical and the literary copyright. So you need permission of the writers and of the owners of that recording. So it's no good saying, oh, I've got permission to use the song. If you're using that recording as well, you need to go to the recording owners and get their permission too. Now, they may say no, in which case it's not all lost. 
because you could actually say, okay, I can't use that recording of it, but I could go into the studios and create my own recording of that song because I've got permission to do what I want to with the song. It's just a recording I can't use. So there's a little bit of flexibility there, but you know, most people would probably want to record... Well, I don't know, actually. I'm, I'm just going to say most people would use the recording as well as the song, but I'm not sure that's right. So y- you have to decide. I guess it's a bit like sync, isn't it? When you're selling a piece of music to be used in a film or TV or advert, and if they want to license the music, they've got to license what we call both sides. They've got to license the song and the recording. Although I guess they can always re-record um, the recording if they want to. I mean, sometimes you'll see it'll be sort of like a sound alike, and the the song they've they've cleared the one side, if you like, they've they've got permission to use the song, but maybe the recording was a bit too much for the budget, so they get someone to record it so that it's like the original but not quite. So it, it's but you're right. Most of, often the budget isn't there for them to do that, and they decide too late in the day anyway. So they usually are clearing both sides and we adopt a sort of rule of thumb when that happens that whatever you get for the masters you also pay for the song and vice versa so let's say I got a a clearance for a thousand pounds to use the song the master the sound recording copyright would also be another thousand pounds okay and in terms of ownership of recordings how do people establish that is that simply something that's in the band agreement or is it slightly more complicated? Starting with the, the law, the law on who in the UK on who owns it is, is rather oddly phrased. It's the person making the arrangements for the recording to be made. Now, when, when we first saw that in the Copyright Act, it was a bit of head scratching as if to say, well, what does that mean? You know, the person, the booker at the recording studio, obviously that isn't what it meant. So we went back to the previous law and got a steer from that, and it's now clearly established that what that means is that the person who paid for the recording to be made. And a lot of people get tripped up on this, particularly DIY, because they might, for example, use a mate's recording studio. Now, technically, in law, it's the mate that owns that copyright, not them, because it's the mate who has paid for the equipment on which they recorded that song. So they would then need an agreement between them and their friend to make sure that any copyrights that the the friend may have in those recordings are transferred to the band or to the recording artist. And that step is very often missed out. That just seems illogical in a way to me, but it's the law, isn't it? It is. And so I I was reminded of that recently um, when... A blast from the past came back and sadly someone I'd worked with many many years ago passed away and I it was I was straight back to um, a, a situation at the beginning of their recording career where a recording studio came out of the woodwork and said you're about to be a mega star we've got recordings of your early performances we are going to put them out and of course that was not what was wanted and there was a huge hoo-ha over it So it is always worthwhile making it absolutely clear who owns what. So if you book a recording studio, make sure that there's at least an email that says that anything recorded is owned by the artist rather than the studio. 
Um, if you're recording in your producer's studio, you want an agreement that says that the record producer has no interest in that copyright, has transferred it to you. Um, and again, sometimes when people are working with friends, they feel uncomfortable about doing that. But you've got to put that to one side and be absolutely clear on this so that later on there is no doubt as to who owns it and who can do what with it. Um, the record deal will often be very clear on who owns the copyright, but if we're talking DIY, of course, that, that piece isn't necessarily there. And then between the band members, let's say we're talking about not a solo artist, but a duo or a, or a band, then the band agreement would specify who owned that. All, all recordings made are equally owned, is the most common. But sometimes in early days, if one of the members has got a job and pays for the recording, they might say, well, I own that recording until you've managed to pay me back half the cost. So those are the sort of things that you would discuss as part of a band arrangements. But all too many times, people don't want to have those difficult conversations. And I wish they would, because when they come to me with these difficult conversations in six months' time, it's going to cost them an awful lot more than if they'd sorted it out at the beginning. Why do you think that is? Is it that people are just shy of having difficult conversations? Well, sometimes, you know, the studio appears more sophisticated, seems to know what they're doing, the record producer, they want to stay on side with the producer... Or they just don't want to rock the boat. Everything's going really well. Let's not talk about the elephant in the room. But if, if you're going to be a DIY artist, you are label and artist. And therefore, you have to take on board that you're going to have to do some difficult things. It may be that you're not really very good at those difficult things and you would much rather just be the creative artist. In which case... You have to, as part of your DIY plan, plan to have people on your team who will have those difficult conversations for you. Be that a manager or a product manager or you know whatever their role is. Someone who will be that interface for you to make those difficult conversations happen and to then you know record them in some way, send each other an email, do a band agreement, do a do a proper, you know, sort of full-blown distribution or label agreement. But if we're talking to that degree, you will have a lawyer on board. So really all you need to know at that point is we need to get a lawyer. You've got other people that play on recording, backing vocals, instrumentalists. They might not be in your band. Do they have any rights in, in the recordings? Absolutely they do. They didn't always, but again, thanks to some changes in uh, European law um, a decade or so ago... Uh, performers were also given rights that sit alongside copyright, performers' rights. They're in, enshrined in our copyright law through a, a separate piece of legislation. And they are very similar to the rights of a copyright owner. So it's the right to prevent somebody making use of a recording of your performances, um, putting it out there, playing it... Um, putting it in a, an, an advert, you know, the similar rights to those of a copyright owner. This is why they are sometimes referred to as neighbouring rights. They sit alongside or are neighbours to copyright, but they are rights of the performers 
and they, their permission, therefore, also has to be obtained before you can do what you want with the recordings of their performances. And so this has become um, quite a hot topic currently, but also a growth area of revenue generation through streaming because um, performers you know, are generating quite a lot of income now and neighboring rights companies are jumping on board and saying, we can collect this income for you. There is a, a, a central established collection society called Public Performance Limited, PPL, um, that collects this income. But there are lots of agencies who are saying, okay, give us the right to collect because we can, we can do better. We can, we can do it cheaper, we can do it better or whatever. So there is a whole growth area of people collecting neighboring rights. It's not just the performers' rights, it's a sort of catch-all phrase, because in some countries there are also things like a tape levy. So each time you make a recording on a permanent piece of material like a CD or a tape, there is a fee that is collected for that. So it's a, it's a rough bundle of rights that sit alongside copyright called neighbouring rights. Do people register recordings at PPL? in the same way that they register songs at PRS? Absolutely. In the UK, you would, unless you had a, an agent that was doing it for you, the registration would be at PPL. You become a member of PPL and your entire uh, catalogue of works, you would then register saying, you know, I played the violin on this one, I sound vocals on that record. Normally, that is the role of the record label. And when they're about to release a record, they will file those details with PPL. But if we're talking DIY, of course, there is no label. You are the label. So you have to be responsible for registering the performances and, and therefore, in due course, getting a piece of the income from that. Anything else that people should be aware about, you know, the DIY musicians when we're looking at the recording side of things? Well, you, you obviously have other people that are part of the process as well. You have producers, mixers, possibly remixers. And you need to make sure that um, they haven't acquired any copyright in what they have done, or if they have, that they transfer it to you. You probably need a very simple producer agreement. Um, and a variation of that would work for a mixer. Um, Sometimes these people are paid a fee, just one-off fee for their work, and no ongoing financial obligation to them. But more often than not, a producer will be on what we call points, which is royalties for each, uh, each time the recording is reproduced, there will be a royalty generated for them. Mixers, if they've got a decent name, will also probably want at least one point. Remixers, again, if they're very big name mixers, they may want a point on their remix, but more often than not, a mixer will probably accept a, a flat fee. But these are all arrangements that have to be recorded in some way. And you have to be also sure that they're not going to be claiming that they have any interest in the song. Because we had a few high profile cases in the last 10 years, where people like session musicians, like producers, like mixers, have claimed that they have contributed to the song and have a piece of the action. And so our agreements would now deal with that and would say, 
you, Mr. Producer, Miss Producer, you don't have any right in the songs, or it might say, Producer, you have a 20% interest in these songs. So you, you, you have to do your business with those third parties as well if you're using them on your recordings. And would that be some sort of template agreement? Or would even an email work? Or is that too crude? You know what? If it's all I've got, David, I'll take an email, Martise. Now, ideally, it would be a very simple couple of pages setting out what's been agreed and signed, right? But, and, and, and this kind of brings me on to something that a little bit of a bugbear of mine. Um, and that is when you're budgeting as a DIY artist, you budget for your recording costs, your musicians, and you know what the what you've got to pay for for mastering, etc. But so often, the professionals that are going to help you from falling foul of the law are very at the bottom of the queue, and it annoys the hell out of me when I, I can't get hold of a client because they are on a holiday in Greece, and then they come back and say they haven't got the fees to pay me. No, it don't work like that. If you're going to be your own record label and you're going to put out your own recordings, you have to be responsible for everybody that is helping you achieve that. And that includes your professionals. So if we, we are very flexible in terms of helping people out at early stages, but we're not a charity and you have to budget to have proper legal advice and to some extent, perhaps proper uh, accountancy advice as well. And so often it's assumed that we'll give freebies, and I don't think that's right. So I think a line in your budget should definitely be for basic legal advice to make sure that you don't make expensive errors. Can we move on to live now, please, Anne? Do, do you get much involved with the live side of things? Um, I mean, there's no copyrights there, is there, other than people perform songs? Um, but what, what, what involvement do you have with the live side? Do you know what? Until 18 months ago, I would have 100% agreed with that statement, David. Um, I didn't used to... I have uh, promoters as clients and I have booking agents as clients. So I get involved on that end. But they tend to have standard terms of business if they have... um, And they they do their own kind of booking contracts in-house. So on the whole, I don't get involved unless there's a problem. But since lockdown marched... 2020 the live scene has transformed itself and so now we have people that may be performing live to an to an empty room um, but they are being filmed and it is streamed live or as live and in many cases it is ticketed in some form or other now that is something that we have to get involved in or should be involved in because you are then making a recording. It may be a transitory one because it's going out live, but you are making a recording and therefore there is a copyright involved and it starts to become quite a lot more complex. I don't think this is probably the venue to go into this, but you have re-record restrictions, which you know people forget that they're supposed to not be making more recordings of a record and then they do an as live or a live and they have made a recording. So with these new forms of experiencing the live performance, we have become a lot more involved than we ever would be before. 
What what it, would you consider practical advice for DIY musicians if they're considering planning a streaming event? Um, they need to clear they need to clear the songs. Basically, they need to make sure that they they are right ready to you you make make the performance of the songs. They probably haven't got any re-record restrictions because they won't have signed a record deal. But if they are currently DIY but previously had a record deal, then the warning bell should go off and you should think, ooh, am I still under a restriction about recording my songs when I perform them? And most major record labels will have re-record restrictions in the contract and I'm seeing increasingly people falling foul of that. They forget it was four years ago but it's a it's a five-year re-record so in most cases they wouldn't need to get overly worried but if you're going to be using any of the now established platforms for live or as live they will probably guide you through what is required and make sure that all the necessary permissions are in place in terms of old-fashioned live, live in front of an audience, is there anything DIY musicians should be aware of when dealing with promoters or directly with venues? Unless they are you know, already very successful DIY artists, the, the practical answer is that within reason what the promoter wants he's going to get because um, you know, you're not going to have the necessary bargaining power and bargaining power is everything in, a, in this industry. Um, so you know, by all means, I'm not saying, you know, roll over and, and you know, accept anything that comes your way, but accept that if you want to appear on that gig and promoter is only offering you 200 quid, that's probably what you're going to have to accept. Um, so that's a negotiation like anything else. You use your bargaining power to see what the best terms you can get from the promoter. If you've got an agent, you might have a live booking agent, even though you're not signed to a record deal. That agent will do the negotiations for you, take their cut and pay you the balance. If they're thinking of getting an agent, is there anything legally that they need to be aware of with that? Not, not really. I mean, it's a commercial. you're employing the services of an agent. So you have to be clear as to what the agent is going to do for you um, and what they expect to be paid in return. And again it would be good to have that recorded. Now, most established agents are covered by agency regulations, which require them to make it absolutely clear. And most of the established agents will have terms of business. So that is, you know, you're engaging someone just like you engage a mastering engineer or whatever. It's a commercial transaction. So you have to consider that because you are commercially then bound by what you've agreed. Um, but aside from that, you know, the agents operate independently and separately from the recording or songwriting side. So you could have an agent and not be in a publishing deal or a record deal. Could we finally um, run through some of the particular areas around um, developing an artist's profile? You know, they use a number of tools online. Could we just talk through the legal side of some of those? So, for example, you know, the domain name, the URL, and maybe social media accounts is similar. How does an artist make sure that they own them? Get your domain name as soon as you've decided on your artist name. If the domain name is not available in any of the top-level domains, think again about your name, because it would suggest that somebody else is already actively using it. Um, you can use the Whois service to find out who owns those. And if you really, really are desperate to get that domain name, you could uh, approach them and see if they're willing to transfer it to you. But um, to get the, your domain name and you set it up, you pay for it. 
If somebody else does it for you, you really should be making sure that they're doing it in your name, not theirs. The same with your website developer. They should be, if they, if they create the website for you, then make sure that in the terms you agree with them, they transfer any and all interests they have in that website to you. Um, you, you need to be the owner of any database of names, contact details, emails that you collect off uh, your social media or your website, because under data protection regulations, it, 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 it's harder, if not impossible, when you are not the owner of the database to use that data in any way. Um, then you need to think about any logos or graphics that you are using. Let's say you get a mate to draw, a lo draw up a logo for you. They will own the copyright in that logo unless you get them to transfer it to you, even if you pay them. So again, this is often misunderstood. If you commission someone to create, let's say, a piece of artwork for you, Unless you agree that you own that, they will. So you need to get them to transfer any ownership they have to you so that you can use it freely and know that nobody's going to claim that you're doing something wrong. Photographs, same thing. If you're using photographs and you've employed a photographer, it should be a term of your deal with a photographer that any copyright in the photographs is transferred to you. Now, photographers have got very canny in the last decade over their rights, and they are very often quite happy to give you rights to use the photographs, say, in album cover artwork, um, but they are not willing to necessarily give you free the right to use them in, let's say, on a T-shirt, right? So if you want those merchandising rights, alongside the album artwork, you have to make that clear that all rights are transferring. And expect that the, produce, the photographer may want something else for the right to use in merchandise. They might want an extra fee, they might want a small percentage. You have to be clear what they're expecting and transfer any rights that they may have to you. So again, that's within the contract or worst case through an email? Again, through a contract or a binding email. And, you know, again, my comment is, if possible, get it as a properly drawn up agreement. But if that really is not possible, then make sure it's very, very clearly set out what is agreed and get a very clear acknowledgement back that it's agreed. Is there somewhere that a DIY musician can find templates or do they need to go to a lawyer to get that kind of thing? I'm a bit worried about templates. Because there are a whole plethora of them online and people gleefully say, oh, it's okay, Anne, I don't need you, I've got a template. And I ask them to show me the template. And very often it will be American. And, you know, you're a UK artist acquiring copyright and rights under UK law. You shouldn't be using a US contract. And then sometimes it is a UK contract, but somebody's played around with it and it doesn't work anymore. And unless you are a lawyer, you may not necessarily know that it doesn't work. So I'm a little worried about just general templates that people download. There are, you know, many, many organizations in, in our industry that are there to help you in the early days. I mean, we have, you know, Musicians Union, um, the Featured Artists Coalition, 
the Association of Independent Musicians, AIM. Um, um, well, BASCO, as it used to be called, it's now the Ivers Academy. All of these people have, you know, basic advice and guidelines that they can give you and can direct you to more legitimate sources um, of information and templates. But as a lawyer, I'm getting itchy, and I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. But yeah, I can. I can. I am itchy when I am seen to be advising that someone just blithely goes and uses a template without knowledge of what they're doing because it's so easy to make a mistake. But do you work with people and, and, and then you set up templates and kind of instruct them about how to use them? Is that something you would do? I mean, we have what we call our precedent system, where we have um, a set of commonly used that we have combined all our, there's eight of us doing this, and we combine all our thoughts on what's a good producer deal, and we combine them all into the one precedent. Um, but it's a start point, because everybody has slightly different concerns, focuses, and so we take the template and we adjust to the client instructions. Um, so we can, you know, if somebody comes to us and says, I want a standard musician's agreement, I want a standard producer agreement, we would talk to them about what they want, what style they want, and then we would create a template for them, uh, which they, we would guide them as to how they could make changes to that, but we would also put the health warning in that said, if you make major changes to these clauses without asking us, we're not going to be liable. So, you know, if they stick to the template, we are saying it's okay, but if they go outside it, we expect them to come back to us and check. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any other rights in that kind of area of social media and images? Um, I'm presuming videos are similar to photos, are they? Again, it's the same thing. They would be the owner of the footage that has been shot unless you have an agreement with them that transfers them to you. If you've paid for it, then you would argue under the law, we are the people that paid for it, we own it. But I would still prefer to have a, at least a sort of an email chain that says, we're coming in to record this video, we'll own it, we're going to pay you 500 quid. You know, that, that I'm very happy with because it gives me a, a, a basis on which to work. I think the thing that, that I would want to stress, David, is something that I did touch upon, although you're DIY, that doesn't mean you're cheapskate or you're not doing it properly. If you're going to make the decision to be DIY, you have to set it up as a business. You have to decide what structure it's going to have, whether it's a limited company or, or some other structure. And you will probably need specialist accountancy advice on that. But you also have to decide to do it properly. If you're just going to put something up on SoundCloud, okay, fine. But if you're expecting this to be your means of earning a living, you are a business and you should set it up like any other business. And if you aren't capable of doing the work yourself or you are not inclined to do it yourself, you've got to employ someone who knows how to do it. And that could be a very good project manager who's done this many, many times before. It could be a very experienced manager. Um, you know, it, it, it could be that you work with, with a lawyer, but they are part of your team. And I would suggest that you focus, well, first and most, you've got to make a brilliant piece of music, okay? And you've got to record it to the best of your ability. But over and above that, you have to say to yourself, DIY does not mean a botched job that I do on a Sunday afternoon. It is my business, and therefore I'm going to run it properly 
And just like I would employ a sales manager if I was, you know, selling goods, I will employ someone that will take a lot of this flack off me so I can get on with being a brilliant creative. But that has to be factored into your business plan and it has to be budgeted for. Have you actually seen any written business plans by musicians? I have, and they range from uh, back of an envelope, I'm going to do this by this date and these are the sort of rough stages I'm going to take. To, you know, sometimes, you know, they've been to a bank manager or a finance manager and they will say, okay, here's a template business plan, fill in the gaps. Um, When I say a business plan, I'm sort of thinking, please have some notion of how you're going to make money out of this. If you're doing it for fun and you don't expect to make any money from it, fine. But if you are expecting this to be your way to market, then just like if you were selling... I, I don't know, if you were um, selling macrame uh, potholders, right, you know, on your online shop or your Etsy shop, then you would expect to know how much it would cost to make that item, what your profit margin might be after you've paid everybody else, and then work out if it's still worth doing it. And at the very least, somebody should do that. But I have to say that I doubt very much that that process has gone through with most people, certainly not the very early days. And that is why so many of them actually end up signing on to a bigger label, because they realise that it is not, it's a full-time job. And they either don't have the skill set or they do not want to have uh, develop the skill set, in which case they might sort of sign on to a, in a larger independent or indeed say, I'm going to do a licence deal with a major and let them take all this flag off me. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm kind of coming to the end of my questions. The obvious uh, next one, though, is um, if people want to get hold of you, how do they get in touch with you? I think the best thing to do would be to email the company on info at ssb.co.uk. That is monitored daily and um, we allocate depending on uh, resources. So if somebody is absolutely swamped, but somebody else has got a little bit of scope, we would say, could you please take this and reply to this person? And generally speaking, we would have an initial conversation um, Preferably um, not email, but a chat. And these days, thankfully, we're back to seeing people over a coffee face-to-face. And then we would sort of have a better idea of whether we're the right people to help you. And if we aren't, we will refer you to suggestions of people that we think would be better suited. Or we might say to you, bit too early, folks. You know, come back when you've got to this stage or that stage. Because you know, we can only help... How can I put this? You know, the expense of employing us um, has to be done at the right time. So if you've literally not yet started thinking about writing your songs, you don't want your lawyer on board. Okay, so they'll get in touch with you and and somebody at your company will kind of triage them so that they, uh, to make sure they're at the right stage to come on board and if not, point them in a different direction. Or or just say, look, do this and then come back and have another chat, you know. Um, generally speaking, you know, we will have that initial conversation without there any any fees being associated with it. But once we start having to put aside other work and provide real, proper legal advice, then we would require you to identify yourself for money laundering purposes. So we have to know our client as professional solicitors. All clients have to do that, don't they? Absolutely. You know, we require a passport or some photographic evidence. Um, and then, you know, we would do, a, funny enough, like a little contract with you. We send you our terms of business, which sets out 
uh, what we're going to do for you, what the likely charges are, how we charge, when we charge, and then only when you are happy to go forward do we start getting stuck into the actual legal work. And how do the fees work? Talking for myself, um, I would always prefer to try and give somebody a, a price for a job. This is something I learned when I was working for myself for 14 or 15 years. I, I found that people starting out, it was sort of quite nervous if I said my hourly rate is X, they would, you know, it would be a bit freaky because it's quite high. Um, but if I said to you, to do this piece of work will cost £250, then they can be more comfortable that they know it's within their budget. So where possible, I would give uh, a good estimate for the price for the job. But sometimes that's not possible. So we would specify it would be an hourly rate and we set out the rates that apply depending on how qualified, how senior you are in the hierarchy. Um, we generally speaking don't require a payment up front, but we do expect prompt payment at the end of a matter. Um, and if it's dragging on, we reserve the right to sort of send interim accounts along the way. Brilliant. My final question is if you were, I don't know, if you have a billboard in Artist Town with one piece of advice for DIY musicians, what would be written on that billboard? Um, be transparent. If you don't know something, say you don't know it. If you don't understand something, ask for an explanation. Don't hide from the difficult conversations. Be transparent. Say to your co-writer, listen, we're going to go in and record this album. I'm expecting 50% of the publishing. You okay with that? You know, be, be clear. Be transparent and clear as to your expectations. And then what the other person's expectations are will also become transparently clear. And some very confusing situations can be avoided. That's great advice. And that's my questions. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Really good luck with the new version of Music, the Business, your book. I will put a link to that and everything you've mentioned onto the notes to this episode so people don't have to rewind and write things down. They can just go to the written note on the website. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and have a good rest of the day, Deb. Would you be interested in an overview of how the music industry really works? If so, I've put together a mini course called Learn How the Music Industry Works in just 25 minutes. And guess what? It explains how the industry works and takes about 25 minutes to listen to or read. If you'd find this helpful, go to gigami.co, that is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Click on the Start Here button. It will take you to a sign-up page. Please sign up and we will deliver the mini course to you completely free of charge. Thank you to all of my guests who have taken the time to talk with me, and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Miles D, who has written and recorded the Gigami theme music. And as ever, if you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, if you have any questions, or if you just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.